Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Shop Talk Show. We have two perfect sponsors this week. Lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com. And then go to slash Shop Talk, which will get you seven free days for the largest learning resource for tech stuff on the Internet for sure. I have a course there you can check out. Uh, and Environments for Humans, who are promoting Artifact Conf, the Artifact Conference, which is coming up uh, pretty quick here in Austin, Texas, May 5th through 7th. Uh, they have a coupon code Shop Talk 2 We'll tell you more about those later in the show. But for now, let's kick things off. Shopaholics, you're listening to the uh, Shop Talk Show, a podcast all about the web design world. I'm Dave Rupert, and with me is Chris Coyer. Chris, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing just super perfectly. How are you, Dave? It's, I'm good. It's pretty quiet in the studio today, isn't it? It's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty quiet. Why is that? Well, there's just, there's no, you know, there's no guest this week. It's as a kind of a, 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 what we like to call around here, a rapid fire. Uh-huh. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, I apologize. I think We're pushing our gun agenda, I think, is what's going on here. Yeah, just totally pro-guns in podcasts. <laughs> so... Yeah, man. So this is good. We are so for those of us who, or for those who aren't catching this live, we are beta testing another uh, uh, Google Hangout with Rapid Fire. But if you downloaded this, it doesn't matter to you. But uh, um, it's it's kind of exciting. We Chris and I are now again face to face. This rarely ever happens. Indeed. Very exciting. Uh, like to see where things go. So no guests, no drama. Just we're getting right into the questions. First question, you take it, Dave. First question comes from Confucius Chow. Is that C-3PO in the background? Oh, yes, shoot. it is. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, thank you. <laughs> See how quick this live feedback is, is happening right now. So anyway, all right. Let's uh, get into the question on answer. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Adam Overstreet writes in, I know the picture tag. You guys have, uh, you have the ability to add various image sizes based on screen size. Will there be something similar for the figure tag, Chris? Mm. So uh, what Adam is talking about is literally the picture, the HTML tag, which is, uh, you know, it's kind of a proposal, you know, I don't know if you've been following the, the responsive images drama much at all, but the latest in it is that people are, are starting to agree uh, that, that, that it has a place in the world. So there was source set and that has a place in the world. And then there's going to be picture two. There's going to be two things that are going to help us with responsive images. Uh, and picture is just a special markup that's a little bit like the video tag and that there's an opening v- picture tag, a closing picture tag, and then within it, a bunch of more tags, source tags. Um, that are going to, uh, you know, take a picture source, but then also have what it was a media attribute, right? <laughs> and or or, so, or whatever the attribute is that defines what the media query is. <laughs> is yeah. that was uh-huh. that a yay query moment for you? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm the like <laughs> fake AJ Piano here. <laughs> Uh, okay, so th- that's how that works. And it, if one of those media query matches, that's the source of the image that it's going to display. This is going to be great for us for for image or for pictures in markup for content pictures that depend on what you know which one do you want to serve in which uh, uh, in which situation which media like query small, match small medium big right so chrome is on board and they're like hey we're gonna do this and yoav weiss i think is his name right is saying saying mm-hmm. i i i i'm a programmer and i write code for browsers and i'll do this it's just it's a little bit of a uh you know maybe not thankless at this point but at least not well paid job he's gonna like open source contribute it he's gonna you know, spend his own time writing the code to do this unpaid by anybody. So they, they started up one of those campaigns, not Kickstarter, but the other one, you know, I can't remember what it's called, Indiegogo or something. And 
So like, hey, I'm going to spend a whole bunch of time doing this and it's really going to help lots of developers in the world. Uh, and it had like a $10,000 goal or something, which is, you know, uh, uh, if that seems like a lot to you, it's probably not a lot compared to what a developer salary for someone is who writes browser code for a living does because you know, it's going to take them so many months or whatever. Uh, and that hit its goal. So that's pretty cool. So we are going to get picture. Even Chrome contributed to that campaign, which is pretty neat as well. So did Firefox. They're on board too. Uh, yeah, that should be pretty cool. So is there going to be something similar for the figure tag? That's the question. I'm sorry that took so long to get through the thing, but figure is just a semantic element, like a div or a section or article or whatever. And that just wraps it to say, Hey, this is a figure. And if you want to put a caption in it, you can put fig caption. It's just a semantic element. I don't think it it, it, is planning to have the same, any kind of actual functionality. You know, it doesn't actually do anything. It just is a thing. Yeah. Yeah, fig, I think you're a little confused. Like, figure kind of does nothing by itself. It's just a div. You can put a picture in your figure. Yeah, and you will. I think All we'll see day. that a lot. You know, you'll see a figure with a picture inside of it with a fig caption and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There we go. Let's call it. See, we got some questions in the chat room. You want you want to handle some of these? Should we? Yeah. Here we go. Robert DeLuca writes in. This is crazy. We're like, we've never done these live questions. No. Robert DeLuca writes in Ember JS versus Angular JS. Which would you use? I don't know. It would make Tom Dale very mad if I picked <laughs> Angular JS. So just for, you know, community cred, I'd have to pick Ember. You yeah, know? you don't want to go against Tom Dale. <laughs> right? You can't. Uh, I, so I think if you're doing a Rails app, Ember makes a lot of sense. It's built by a lot of the same communities, like a lot of crossover there. There's a lot of parity there. Uh, that would be good to do. Um, if you like, just have all this JSON from your Java app or something. I don't know. Choose Angular. I mean, you got to think about like who's building it. You know, I, I, like Google is building Angular to power all their like big apps on, on Google scale. So that's good too. Like I, I would actually just say, don't worry about it. Just get into it and do it. So, yeah. You're more qualified to answer what did, that. What do we I say am. here? Just build oh, nailed it. I think we did the C3PO one. Yes. Yes, that is. Uh, okay, let's do one from. Let, let's <laughs> wait for a few more to trickle in in the chat room here, uh, and do one by Eric Servan Eden, who writes in Dear Shop Talk. Styling scroll bars using CSS has been a discussion that was introduced by IE 5.5 way back in 2001. For a long time, this was considered faux pas, but over the past three years, with support from WebKit and a prevalent use on web apps like Gmail, Facebook, CodePen, etc. Yeah, we're right in that group. <laughs> the topic is, uh, again, gaining traction. As, as far as I know, Gecko is the only engine that doesn't support styling scroll bars in CSS, forcing developers to style scroll bars using JavaScript and or plugins. I'd like to know what your opinion is on the issue. I think it's a opposite. Well, you almost have it right. I think WebKit is the slash blank is the only browser that is supporting it now, and they do it through WebKit prefixed properties like, you know, colon colon dash webkit dash scroll bar and then a whole bunch of other ones there's like literally like 15 or 20 different you know i guess we think of them as kind of shadow dommy even though it's not quite shadow dom or i guess it is but i don't know little parts proto, of it and stuff. proto shadow dom <laughs> sure that's what we're calling it um <laughs> Uh, they're the only ones that, that can. And I think if I was a different person or worked on different projects, I would be like, uh, why are we even going here? This is the kind of thing that browsers should just do. There's a user affordance to scroll bars that should be maintained. I can imagine myself having that opinion. Uh, but I also can, now that I work on CodePen and we decided that the editors were going with generally a dark theme over the, the entire site, uh, I've decided to, you know, style the scroll bars dark in the editor because I think they're just less obtrusive in the particular style that we have going on there. And I like the look of them. And it's always a bit jarring to me when I hop over to Firefox and I'm like, oh, yeah, there's big white chunks right in the middle of the page because there's just no way to change that style. And it, honestly, it kind of bugs me. And now I do wish there was a standardized way to to handle it. Um, so it's that what I work on has affected my opinion there, which no surprise, right? 
Yeah. My advice here is just don't. Like, let it go. I know it. I know they probably bother you, but just don't. Like, I, for me, it's like a system level thing. It, it's like the, a user is used to their scroll bars. They love them. They If they use them, they actually use them, and uh, they want them to be familiar. I mean, we, we kind of went through this web where, like, you with IE5 and stuff like that, you'd show up and there'd be, like, blue scroll bars with, like, pink lines and... It was just like, what the crap is going on? So I'm kind of a fan of, of yeah, just let it be. either, either like what you're doing, like just like trying to switch the contrast or something that's maybe fine, but yeah, that's, uh, that's I, all I want, I guess. Maybe it didn't have, doesn't have to be so complicated, but maybe the, there could be some like opacity setting to it, or maybe there could be like only show when scrolling setting or so maybe there's some middle ground that could make it like acceptable on sites where they look very jarring, but without mm-hmm. like the, you know, without giving developers a ton of, ton of control over it. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's interesting. Like Windows has scroll bars, right? But they have these very awesome, you know, very minimal scroll bars, but then when you like but then if you have a mouse plugged in or it detects a mouse or whatever, it will give you the big fatty scroll bars, you know. Oh, that's neat. Um that's the kind so, of thing that's so hard to spec out, right? Like how does how do you as a spec author decide how operating systems should handle something like this? Because it's an operating system level thing. Yeah. So I think it's it's just too hard for spec authors to do fairly, I guess. You know, any times when it comes to UI, they tend to back off, you know, like think of the input type equals date, you know? They really don't specify how that should look and work and what the controls in there should be. They just say, as far as I know, I think it's just kind of like put a, make it be like a calendar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let it be. It's let it be it. So, all right, let's do one from the the chat room because there's a couple of ones in here that are getting lots of upvotes. This is cool. This is unprecedented territory here. Uh, uh, (laughs) uh, It's like psychedelic. I'm going to select it. I don't know what happens when I hit select, but it's it kind of moves it up to the top. Answering. Do you still use Grunt JS? I saw you post. Uh, uh, you were trying Gulp JS. Do you notice any real differences in performance or features? They say it's faster, but but Grunt compiles out essentially instantly for me on my Retina MacBook Pro. So this is a lot of people are very interested in this. We have a number of questions that came in because it. I don't know. It's such a. It's just. It has all the right overtones of a good tech drama, right? Grunt versus Gulp. Oh my God! Came out of left field. What should I do? I just got used to Grunt, and now everybody's saying use gulp what's going on here people want answers dave i call it foutwood which is fear of using the wrong tool foutwood oh that should be your next event or a list of part book uh that's my list of part yeah fear of using the wrong tool um so i like gulp i'm I'm trying to pull everything over to gulp because i enjoy it um gulp and grunt are the same thing basically except grunt you just write a big uh, like configuration json like it's like miles of json uh gulp you write like little functions that just execute over and over and over or whatever it's kind of like you're writing a node app in gulp which is you know if you're not comfortable with that you'd rather just like write json then grunt's your thing but if you like you're like yeah I, i know how to write functions and you know do that sort of thing then gulp is kind of the the Maybe it's going to make more sense to you. It's going to be easier. It's like a Sinatra app if you've ever used Sinatra, pretty hmm. or Express or something. Yeah, they you know they say writing your Gulp file is is just like straight up writing Node, right? Where the, your your Grunt file is 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 configuration, which it's one of those things that makes me like coffee script because when you look at miles of JSON, like you said, it's nice to skip all those curly brackets and stuff. CoffeeScript is yeah. sweet for that. But yeah, that was a, a kind of moment I had with Gulp because I, I did do it on one side. And it was kind of like I have I have a, in my mind I have a plan for this file. I have a plan for this .scss file. And I, what I expected to happen in my mind is that at first it compiles to CSS. Then it gets linted or something. Then it gets compressed. Then it um, – 
gets auto prefixed. You know, there's all these little things that I know needs to happen to this file after it's done. And that does kind of make a little more intuitive sense in Gulp, I think. Like, here's the file, pipe it to all these different things, and then put it where I want it to put it. Whereas in Grunt, there's kind of like a take this file, run this one thing, and put it here. Then after that, grab it again, run this one thing, and put it back here. Then grab another thing. You know, so it's it's just less pipey, but I don't know. Maybe that can be improved in Grunt. The piping is a big deal. It, for me, it, like, it, it triggers like how easy jQuery is, like chaining functions. You're just like A, then B, then C. You know, in, in Gulp, you have to kind of manage – or sorry, Grunt, you have to manage where you temporarily stash an object or a file or whatever. And then you have to go get that from the thing and then put it in the thing. Gulp is just like a, a assembly line. It's just like script, choo, 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 output, done. So, yeah, and I, I, I last like time that. I mentioned that, some, somebody on the Gulp team was like, no, it's more than that. And I was like, I bet <laughs> no. it is, you know? I just, I don't write Pretty node. much jQuery. <laughs> so I just, like, I, I get it that, like, if you are a node person, that, that that could be appealing to you to be able to have your, you know, have your essentially your Gulp configuration file be open to whatever kind of code you want to write. But that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, speaking of that, maybe we'll, we'll do this... Um, this Roger Vandewalker question that just says, because it's it's similar in spirit, I think, that says, if I'm only interested in straight up compiling and minimizing SAS and JavaScript in a project, why why would I go with Grunt or Gulp when there's when there's like GUI tools for this? What do you think about that? Uh so my big thing about I, I so all these tools are really awesome, right? Like Grunt or sorry prepros or or code kit or anything like that uh the the problem is a it's paid right uh, or it's maybe only on one platform or something like that so then you have to like buy licenses and do all that stuff maybe your team doesn't want to do that especially when the stuff is free and and then you just have to kind of like do some uh, just a little bit of of work to get it kind of going uh you got camera 2 going chris it's a <laughs> camera good. shoot <laughs> um uh so that for me like the the money thing is a thing for a lot of people uh b these the the tools that are bundled up in a gui only like they they cannot go as fast as the command line i mean like you could have spent months building a gui for grunt right and then gulp comes out and then and then it's just like oh man we just wasted all that time and energy we should have you know now we have to redo that all over again. Uh, so there's tools kind of happen faster than apps like like Prepros or or CodeKit or whatever can update. Uh, I know CodeKit is making some strides to like make it so you can execute commands yourself, which is kind of cool. So you could kind of like stay ahead of the curve, like you could compile your Jekyll or something like that um, with CodeKit. But again, it, it's just kind of like that works and. Until a point, you know, like um, you, you, you're you going to have to, it, it, I think we should all kind of, I feel like it's coming to like, if you build websites, you should have some familiarity with the command line. I'm not saying you have to be a pro. I'm just saying like, it should not be like this dark place to you. That's, that's my personal IMHO there. Yeah, I like it. I think a lot of the GUI tools are for for the lone soldiers too. Generally, not not everybody, not in every case. Especially, you know, CodeKit has a CodeKit.config file now that that you could be version controlled and you could get everybody happily on that. But I generally find the larger the team, even if the team gets to uh, you know more than a handful of people, I think th- that's one of the big advantages of Gulp and, Gulp and Grunt is that it's all kind of configured in your repository. People just pull it down and run commands, and it's easier to kind of keep everybody on the same page with 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 things like that. Um, good luck, Roger. Maybe we'll do one from our, from our list in here. Uh, actually we should do a sponsor probably. Uh, yeah. we, we got, um, lynda.com. Like I told you at the top of the show, L Y N D A.com. And then go to slash shop talk. If you go to slash shop talk, that's how you can, if you sign up through that URL, you get your seven day free trial. So if you've never done it, I encourage you to do it because straight up you get seven free days of their entire resource library, which is enormous, right? There's just more video training on that site than, uh, than anywhere out there. So the, it's the kind of stuff that we talk about. I mentioned coffee script just a minute ago. They have a course called up and running with 
coffee script. They have a, 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 a course called Creating Icon Fonts for the Web in which I'll do a follow-up course on uh, – probably not, but I'm going to debate it that using SVG for icon fonts or for icons is better. But anyway, if you're interested in that, uh, Creating Icon Fonts for the Web. There's Responsive CSS with SAS. You know, all these courses, all this type of stuff we talk about, there's like learning courses that you can dig in a little more in-depth with them on there. But then they have all this other stuff too, right? Like just super recently, they put out a class called Excel 2013, working with dates and times. You know, like, do you, do you want to get better at accounting tools? Cause that type of stuff is there. Do you want to get better at Lightroom? There's a class all about its new features in five. Do you want to get better at knowing about the lawyerly legal side of the web? There's a class called intellectual property fundamentals, brand new stuff that's just coming out. So it's a huge library in the, in the breadth of what they teach about is huge. Go to lynda.com slash shop talk. All right, we got one here from. I'm gonna, yep. I'm gonna write them a jingle right now. L y n d a dot com. You just want right up the scale, just straight up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. All right, here we go. Uh, let's do Theo Land. Does that sound good? Or yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Is yeah. that where you're headed? That okay. is. All right. How do you deal with ads, more specifically AdSense, when it comes to responsive design? I read about AdSense responsive ad units, blah, 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 URL goes here, uh, but it seems that the ads served are still the standard sizes, not fluid. So a, a better name for them would be adaptive ad units. Fair. I I like that. Um, so if, say, I have a fluid main content area and on some device its width turns out to be 513 pics, is there a way to make my ad be 513 pics as well? Or do I have to serve a, serve a standard size ad unit and have it centered on or one side? This issue is why so far I am choosing adaptive design instead of responsive. Hmm. So the, just to define those things, I think adaptive design has come to mean fairly firmly, like imagine, uh, imagine the classic shrinking browser window and it hits a certain breakpoint and it, uh, it just shifts entirely what it does. And then, it, and then you squish it a little mm-hmm. further. Maybe the browser inju- window is getting a little close to the edges and it goes, ah, and it shifts and everything's in a different place as well. So they're like, they're like fixed layouts, but they just hit and break at certain points. That's what adaptive design is. And I think Theo is right that if that's what AdSense is offering, which is like, here's a, here's an ad that happens to work at these X different sizes. They're not totally fluid. They're, they have just different versions of themselves that adaptive design might be appropriate for that. And nobody says that adaptive design is just straight up a bad way to do it for the most part, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and responsive design being the one that's totally fluid, right? It just works at any different size. So I don't know. I think that sounds reasonable. Yeah, I mean, if you if AdSense is very important to you and you can pull off adaptive design, go for it, right? Yeah, I mean, I for me, I just did a site uh, at ad units and stuff like that. It was tough, you know, but I think kind of what you're looking at is is you'll you do need like this fixed area because you don't know if that ad is going to be like a standard image or an, a flash ad or something like that, and I an iframe video or something like that. So they have to be they can't go like smaller than certain dimensions. Uh, I mean, you can do adaptive. What we just did is we just did breakpoints. You know, if we knew it was 728 pixels wide, like it's basically on the component level, like that ad unit level at 728 pixels, boom, that's when our leaderboard pops in Mm because we know we can support it. We have the width, so we're going to just pop it in. Um, same, you know, a lot of the units are 300 pixels wide, which means you kind of have to get like a fixed column that goes down. And that, I mean, that's actually really not too hard to do. You can do it with display table even or, or whatever you want um, or float mm-hmm. and then do that like margin hack where you do margin and absolute positioning and all that. I mean, there's, there's really like only four widths that you have to worry about. <laughs> I mean, there's like, there's 150, uh, 300, and then, I don't know, 728. I mean, that's basically it. You can do like a 600 pixel wide thing, but you just need to kind of plan for that. You just need to like kind of map out what ad units you have, you know, and then just like, build that's an interesting thought right it's like if the the, that you can think of these ads as being as being this the 
a fixed pixel size, but then you, the rest of your design can be responsive, but you only just, just put them in there when you know that you have room for it and remove them when you don't. Or make, make the, you know, if it's a sidebar ad, for example, make, just make the sidebar a fixed size that supports that image, but everything else is fluid. Those are possibilities too. Right? Mm-hmm. And Flexbox will really help with this too. I mean, you could just do that. Boom. Be pretty easy, but yeah. Um, I think, I think that's, I think it's pretty easy. I, I don't think you have to limit yourself to adaptive design, but I understand why you would. And you know, if that makes sense to you, do that. I just, yeah, I just prefer the fluid nature myself and I'm fine with a little extra white space. So indeed. Logan, right. Logan Pennington. Man. Dropping the ball on the gun. Okay, here we go. I always forget, literally every time. Logan Pennington asks, SAS doesn't support importing CSS files. I'm trying to use CodeKit 2.0 and, the, and import Bower's normalized CSS, or they use Bower to get a copy of normalized.css, but it doesn't work. Could you tell me why and what you do to get around this? I would like to call it call just one CSS file on my HTML page. So Logan's trying to concatenate his his files together is using SAS's ability to do that. And I think me and Dave just talked about on a show recently that if, you know, possibly the most important feature in SAS, which I concur with, is its ability to import other files and squish them together, which uses no SAS syntax barely at all. It's just this, you know, it's just concatenation. It just allows for intelligent kind of organization of files. But apparently SAS doesn't allow you to import .css. I guess I didn't even know that, but... Well, so if you use import from a remote directory, it doesn't like, it's like, oh, you mean like import it with an at import statement. Yeah, like the classic CSS one, which all it does is just make an extra HTTP request. It doesn't actually squish them together. Which is weird. I would have. I, I kind of always thought it knew what to do, but maybe that. Well, the the, the world's but. quickest way to do this is just to change the file extension of normalize.css to normalize.scss, and then it will work. You know, because the the, the, the yeah. syntaxes are cross compatible. So that's the the world's easiest way to do it. Although I guess you're in a weird spot then, right? Because one of the reasons to use Bower is the fact that if normalize were to update, which it does sometimes, that you can just update that thing, and then and now it's it's weird you have to you'll have to make that change again you know it's not just a straight up um like dependency like a gem would be right yeah i so yeah i mean i i feel like in normalize which is kind of one of these things normalize is actually designed to be kind of integrated into your project it's kind of designed to be the right the html5 bootstrap or whatever we call it <laughs> is that it bootstrap i agree uh, you should be CSS, editing it right? anyway so part of that yeah. editing process is is renaming it. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, so that would that would be my thing is like um uh, but I see what you're trying to do. Um yeah, I I would do Chris's hack or whatever and that that would be your easiest way to get started. Indeed. All right. I'm going to do one more conference for one more sponsor here just so we get them out of the way. There's the there's Artifact Conf coming up. That's the URL for it is artifactconf.com. It's a two-day single-track conference, and it's all about – here's what it says. Artifact is an intimate two-day single-track conference that helps web designers and developers adapt their tools and processes to the challenges of designing for a multi-device world. Man, have we talked about anything else the last couple of years? <laughs> If so, scarcely, right? It's all about designing in a multi-device world these days. It's coming up May 5th through 7th in Austin, Texas. Mr. Dave will be there. Hey. Yep. Um, are the tickets, are the people the same at both two events? Is that how they tried to go it? Or are the people listed on the website right now just for the Austin one and then it will change? I think it's just Austin right now, but I think they try to kind of bring like, yeah. it's almost like a road show that they try to like take across America in the world. So if you can't make it to Austin, it is coming to Providence, Rhode Island in September, September 29th and October 1st. So that should be pretty cool. You can use um, Shop Talk Show for a hundred bucks off the it, which is, you know, a good deal. Um, it's on, it's on Cinco de Mayo. It's, That's pretty cool. It's Getting close. Oh, yeah. Cinco de Mayo. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Keith's oh, going to be there. I'm He's gonna... like my spirit animal. 
<laughs> when you uh, apparate or whatever, it, <laughs> Jeremy Keith is your Patronus. <laughs> That's <laughs> some good. anime right. stuff, Dave. Major to that. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> your spirit form. All right, there we go. <laughs> Shall we go? Yep. There's a big question over in the questions bar. Okay. Uh, here in the Google Hangout, live in the Google Hangout. Here we go. It's from Adisa Collis, and we get this question uh, every once in a while, but here we go. If you wanted to find a dev mentor, how would you go about doing that? Also, if you were interested in being a dev mentor, how would you go about letting other people know that you are available? So how do you get mentored, and how do you say, I can mentor? How does that work? Oh, that's interesting. It, it, oh, I, my first thought is like, I don't know, maybe there should be a website for that or something. Although I worry about that too, because that feels a little like, what if it, what if like, don't feel sad if it doesn't take off, you know? Anyway, mm-hmm. I just, I can imagine the problem with that website being that there's not a, a line around the block of people being like, I'm interested in giving away my time for free. You know, that seems to be the biggest problem with our world is that people have so little time because man, we're just doing it all. We're doing all kinds of stuff. But I like the, I like the mentor model. Didn't you, didn't you t- attempt this at one point? Yeah. So, um, this guy, Charles, uh, really awesome guy emailed me. He was like, Hey, I'm looking for a mentor. I thought it would be cool. I thought I'd ask you what to do. We have tried it. We have not been super successful at it, to be quite honest. Uh, I mean, he's busy. I'm busy yeah. and stuff like that. But, um, but, but kind of the idea there is like, uh, I'm, I'm just going to try it and see what happens. Um, see what being a mentor is like, but you know, he, he straight up cold called me and that, and it was yeah. awesome. So that's a know? possibility for you. Um, so, that's a possibility. Um, I would say there, there's other times I've been, you know, uh, in that mentory role, it, it, like, um, we have girl develop it here in Austin. That's really awesome. Uh, it's like a small community of women learning how to develop and pick up coding skills. So it's like I, mentorship and mass a little bit, right? It's just a large class. Yeah. Kind of like a, a group, like a, a small cabal of, <laughs> of, of, teaching each other how to do stuff. Um, you know, and, and the kind of thing about mentoring is like, you literally only have to be like one step ahead of the person who just signed up, you know, so anyone can really do it. Um, but, but if you want, you know, if I wanted Rebecca Murphy or something to teach me JavaScript, it's, it's tough. You know, I like, I'm sure she's busy. I'm sure she like, is like, yeah, you know, I'm busy. I have a kid. I don't, yeah. I'm not going to do it. So how do you do it? I think it's, it's really just like you make yourself known. You go, uh, to meetups and you find somebody. Ideally, there's somebody at your company who can help you, you know, or, or is interested. Companies have, should provide structures for junior and senior devs to kind of train each other. Um, yeah, and Tracy's episode, we talked about that a little bit. I like that idea that you hire, you know, part, part of part of being mentored is being a junior position at your job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's the traditional yeah, GitHub model too, right? Like like maybe you're working on a project with, with an open source project with multiple other people online that there'll be people that are better than you and people that are worse from you. And maybe that's a mentorship-like scenario. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean... You know, and there's. Th- I just times think because they're incentivized then to help you because you're helping them too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's just like there's been times where like yeah, like uh, people will hire you know consultants, bring those people into their company to teach them a skill or something like that. That's that stuff happens. So um, if you feel like you're not being mentored you know, and you work somewhere, it's weird if you work for yourself, but if you work at a company, just ask them like, Hey, I could use some more skill training, you know, yeah, what, think what that can would be we do appreciated. about that? Uh, and I'm all like, Duh. good luck though. I know that's a hard question. I'm sure that now you're not a hundred percent empowered to go find a mentor today. I mean, I think it's just, that's just kind of a hard question. There's not a, there's certainly not just a pile of mentors sitting out there that you can just pick one off of and, uh, and vice versa. So good luck. I mean, I, I think cold, cold call, ask some people, start advertising like, Hey, I'm looking for somebody on Twitter, yeah. you know, and then somebody will be like, I could, I could maybe do that. We need to, yeah, 
That'll yeah. be in my next book apart book. How to mentor. <laughs> no. All right. Hey. <laughs> next All right. question is, uh, should we do another one from the chat here? Dennis Gable, longtime listener, says, is Require JS something to something worthy to dive into or is it on its way out? Eventually, and it be replaced yeah. by something shiny and new module loader kind of right isn't it is the like how we just talked about the most valuable thing that sas does perhaps is the importing and and, and proper organization of css files is you might call require js of that level of importance right i need some way to to break apart javascript files into different concerns and required and and knowing that it's a sucky option to have a production website be loading 30 different javascript files so require js is a thing to load and combine those together in a way. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So require JS basically says like you define these modules, you say this jQuery plugin requires jQuery and require will say, okay, well I'll need to include jQuery in this plugin, um, which is pretty simple. You can do that in your brain. You know, you could write that out in Bower or whatever, or mm-hmm. like in your, in your script, whatever compiler or whatever. Um, but where it gets confusing is like, what if one page only uses like this weird jQuery plugin that also requires two other jQuery plugins. Masonry is a good example of this. Um, it kind of requires these other plugins to kind of totally run and if you're not using the packaged version. Um, so you kind of have to like go build up this dependency tree. Um, so it's basically like an in, browser dependency tree there you go so now that we've defined it is it sticking around or uh i would say i mean i think it is i I think on big uh kind of projects it's really kind of useful um i know this company i'm working with is using flight js from twitter uh which is very similar uh in in the terms of how it's um kind of uses the define pattern, um, the module pattern, which is like coming to JavaScript eventually, or at least a version of that. Uh, so like, yeah, I, I mean, they like flight because it, you can also kind of like lazy load some features and stuff like that. So, so um, uh, require JS say, is also sometimes called AMD asynchronous module definition. And mm-hmm. is it the, is it, I don't get it. Is, is AMD like the philosophy and require JS adheres to that philosophy and theoretically something else dot JS could also adhere to the AMD philosophy? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then there's so something. AMD, oh, go ahead. It, AMD is like the philosophy that is trying to get into um, in, into the ECMAScript 6 or whatever. And then, and, and I can be totally wrong. I'm not a super pro on this, but uh, but then there's also common JS, which is another thing. And that's kind of what all your like node packages run on. Blah. Uh, and that's super successful. And then there's so browserify too, right? Where does that, like if we were to, if while we're confusing all this, <clears throat> where does that fit into this world? Browserify, to my knowledge, allows you to suck up these node modules that were built for the server and use them in the browser. So your um, whatever your file accessor yeah. or something like that. So that's where it gets confusing. Uh, <sighs> anyway, so I, th- I mean, I think require JS is pretty awesome. Um, there is like a build step, but you could do that yourself. I mean, I would not probably implement it on a client side or in a WordPress theme until like you, you like have like until like with grunt or gulp or something you've hit the point where you're like i can't do this anymore this sucks i need a better system that's where this next step is uh, and this, that's a good advice was, i think like just do it with your brain until it's just until you know that you can't anymore and you need help yeah and i th- i know a lot of people use require i know a lot of people are into it flight again is is kind of an up-and-comer uh so so i think that would be a good choice Okay, probably stick, sticking around though. This idea is sticking around. Let's see. Maybe we'll do this audio one from Luke. Can you, is it piped oh, in to do totally that? Totally unprepared here. Oh, I'll uh, we'll skip it, and you... you can get it ready, and I'll do a different one for now. How about that? Yeah, sounds good. Kim Dusting wrote in 
for Dave. Dave, you mentioned you're a book apart generator. Dave's this is his thing. Uh, this was a while <laughs> back when Dave released this thing. Whatever you can find that old show. One, one thing I noticed was that uh, that I hadn't seen before was the use of a paragraph tag to to wrap a label and field pair. You know, you do that. Kim says I usually use a div, but I never really liked the extra markup. Do you use P just to save a few characters, or is it semantically correct? Are there accessibility implications? Uh, also, you used SV. Yeah, let's let's skip part two of the question just for now. But so there's this idea of you have a label and a pair, they, a label and an input, and they are literally paired together because often the ID of the input will be referenced by the for attribute of the label that literally connects them semantically together and functionally together too, because it means that then you can click on that label and the input will be active. Uh, but it's it's long been a part of the like valid HTML that you're not allowed to put those two things just in a form tag. To totally raw. You got to like wrap them together in some kind of other element, which a div is a classic way to do that. Uh, it has to be block level. So you got to pick one of those. But Dave, in this example, apparently picked P. What's up with that? I probably did it because I had a margin and that was fine. Um, right, like the default so bar margin for a paragraph. D divs don't have any default styling, whereas P has a little margin below it. So, hey, what the heck yeah. is that? It was cheap. It yeah. was easy. Um, I don't think... I mean, I've seen it done both ways. I personally like div class input, you know, because that is sort of says like, hey, this is an input field. And that's kind of how Rails does it and some PHP frameworks and stuff. Uh, but, you know, I mean, like, you know, your options are like list. a div a or a P and basically there's the same thing. I mean, a screen reader and stuff isn't going to like be reading and go paragraph label you know oh that's wrong <laughs> that's not how screen readers work yeah. they're pretty tolerant of terrible markup uh so i wouldn't worry about it from an accessibility well, uh, standpoint oh, they do tell you how long a list is though so would there be advantages to using like ol or l or ul i have so i've heard mixed reviews on that like like because a form is a form right and so if you get into a form and then it's like form List nine items. List item number one. Form element label or you know input type text email. You know like it just you kind of like you're adding verbiage that the screen reader mm. is going to read out. Right. So that's not necessarily helpful to somebody who's like just just wants to hear. Like if you think of it, just wants to read what the page says. You're like basically putting widgets and BS that they don't want to even hear like in the form. So I kind of lean away from the OL, UL, even DL sector. probably. What's up? Even DL probably is the same deal. Yeah. And DL. Yeah. Cause, cause any, you want to kind of be aware of what like the screen reader is going to announce and, you know, lists, um, headings, links, sure. stuff like that. So Kind of skip over that if possible. I, so I, maybe we'll go with opinion. div as being kind of the generally possibly best way to do it for now. Div's good if you want cheap padding. P. <laughs> That's my final answer. There we go. I have an audio question here in my email from Luke Whitehouse. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That is awesome. That's like a, a uh, <laughs> sorry, is that a hamburger restaurant? No, that's White Castle. <laughs> Here we go. That's where All the right. president lives. Oh. Hey, guys. My name is Luke Whitehouse. I'm a student and front-end dev from the UK, and I've just got a quick question for you both regarding test runners and tools in general. Over the past few weeks, I've been getting to grips with Grunt, thanks to your blog post, Chris, over on 24 Ways. However, I've come across a new blog post which basically tells me to stop using Grunt and jump over to Gulp, which apparently does the same thing, but better. So, my question is, do you two personally change the tools often that you use, or do you tend to stay with the same one? for a long time. In this instance, we switch to Gulp. It seems these days that there's a new tool coming out every day and um, surely this can't keep going on. Anyway, thanks for your time. Keep up the good work and I love the show. See ya. So weird right, timing because we just talked about this exact thing, right? Um, so back up if you're yeah, just joining us now. But I like the sentiment of <laughs> how, uh, how long do you stick with the tool because you already know it? I think that's maybe what we could use out of this Ooh. question. That's a good question. I mean, so 
in our industry, something new comes out every three weeks, I would say, on average. Some revolutionary new tool, Macaw, just came out, right, very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, kind of, I'm going to say the same thing. Like, just use something and don't worry about what you're using. Don't have Votwoot, which is fear of using the wrong tool. We all know that, right? Um but how often do you really tend know. to change? I find that if I've like realized I've been with something like a year and a half, like probably not doing it the best way possible. Like a year and a half in web time is a long time for something to to change and, and update. So I try to kind of like at least experiment, like do a hello world with all the new tools as soon as I hear about them. Um, just not to say like I have like a mastery. I don't pretend to do that. There are dudes who do that. But I'm more just like, just to know, like, do I like that or do I hate that? AJ Piano, do you? <laughs> Fear of using wrong tool. <laughs> That's good. Thanks. Thanks. It's like, yay. I'm going to pull up the uh, yay query soundboard. How's that sound while we're waiting? Go ahead. So, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah. How often I don't do know you that change I have it? any? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, Everybody has some, what is that scientific term where it's like harder to push a block that's already standing there than it is to push one that's already moving? There's a word for it. Uh, uh, definitely, complex. definitely. <laughs> like stagnant, you know, but this is a different word. or It's like the opposite of momentum. Uh, Demeter, let's do, it just means everybody's got some of that, right? That, 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 that it's easier to stick with things that you already know. And like, and if there's no huge promises, if you're not having a big problem, then why switch at all? And some of that is, yeah, I agree with that. Forget all this learning something new all the time, just for the sake of it. Uh, but, but sometimes you're, that also prevents you from learning something that would level you up. So I think we've talked about in the mm-hmm. past where sometimes it's nice just to have like level up weekend or whatever, where there's nothing at risk. You've decided to explore this new territory Maybe you'll use it, maybe you won't, but you've set aside this block of time to to attempt to level up just just for the sake of it. Uh, I kind of like that idea too. So that if you're if you're feeling stuck with tools, that maybe you don't have to. Maybe you can choose that as a level up weekend activity. New question: Dmitry Ganoff writes in. I've recently dipped my toe in the waters of Node.js. I keep hearing about this amazing tool called Socket IO, but I haven't been able to try it out, and the concept till still escapes me. Have you guys used this, and could you explain what the purpose and use of it is? Um, Socket IO is a uh, web worker framework i guess you'd call it um or no not web worker but like post message framework so i can post a message to your browser indirectly if like if you are subscribing so basically i type something it shows up on your browser yeah i mean this is which like is new technology it seems like it should be easy but it really isn't right because the http and the way that it works is just kind of like i'm a browser i'm gonna go ask for something and the server's like here you go and then it displays it and if you want to kind of do that again the browser's like well i'll just sure do it again i'll just refresh the entire web page it wasn't meant for these like stable connections of like just keep sending me more data whenever you feel like it, and I'll grab that data and do something with it. So it's this idea of WebSockets is that, like more of a persistent connection, or at least oh, saying I'm open to to new requests. So if you have some for me, send them, and I'll do something with them. That's maybe what WebSockets is kind of like, right? Well, WebSockets is mm-hmm. HTML5 yeah, yeah. new fancy, right? And Node just happens to be good at this real-time server stuff. It happens to be a good middleman between doing those types of, of situations. So, you know, Node plus WebSockets plus browsers is pretty cool. The problem is we you can't always count on that, right? Like what, like WebSockets is fairly new. So what Socket.io is is like this, I don't know, it's like a way to have all the fallbacks for it. Because there's other ways you can do this. So a way in the past that like they've b- built chat rooms way back when was something called long polling, right? It would ask the server for something and the server would be like, it would just hang on that request essentially. It just would return nothing and the browser would just spin and spin and spin. 
you know, think, waiting for the request. And then it, as soon as something happened on the server where there it was a new message, it would be, th- then it would complete that request and it would come back and then the browser would immediately ask again. And it would they call it long polling because it would just wait and wait and wait for another request. You don't have to do that anymore. But WebSockets falls back the chain of different technologies for this all the way back to that, I think. Uh, so, it, you know, you, you can, Socket.io can make this work in i6. Is that right? Oof. Could have screwed it up. Yeah, yeah. Socket.io has like a flash uh, kind of polyfill. If it's not supported, it can inject that sort yeah, of flash maybe that's polyfill. The, maybe that's the final gross one at the way bottom. I'm not sure what it is, but there's a bunch of things. Anyway, that's what it does. Uh so uh, if you want an example of this, I um, started a thing over on the Accessibility Project GitHub. It's called WordCast. It was kind of this experiment where you talk into a microphone and it'll automatically subtitle. And that's awesome for if you're talking to yourself, right? Um, but if you want to broadcast that, you need to kind of broadcast. So we set up this thing. You can try it out in your browser. It's kind of in a weird state right now, but like download it, set it up in Node and everything. And then run the server, open it in Chrome, uh, do the microphone thing, uh, start talking, and you'll see subtitles. And then open Firefox and go to the same URL and or the visiting URL, and you'll start seeing the subtitles on, in your Firefox browser. Basically, you're simulating two users sharing an experience across the web. So um yeah pretty cool technology yep. and and that's kind of what's enabling the classic one is like chat real-time chat yeah right i mean i'm mm-hmm. sure there's some yeah there's some web sockets or happening right like, now in this window you're looking at if you're watching live for this google hangouts thing there are web sockets happening yeah if you're on github and you're hanging out there and then all of a sudden like it just shows up like the issue closed you're like what happened <laughs> Who did that? You know, that's the same thing. It's just kind of like GitHub's not just sitting there, like hitting their own servers every five seconds asking for updates because that would just melt their servers. So they're just like, hey, when you get an update, you tell me about it. And it's like, yeah, I can do that. It's a little contract. Mm, indeed. Hopefully that helps there. Um, hold on. Hold on. I got a uh, I got some maybe uh, some audio here. Oh, come on. Don't fail me. Uh, sorry. I was doing so good, Chris, and then it just oh, totally bombed that's okay. on me. Okay, was it a funny sound effect? Oh, it's gonna be some 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 yay query. Hey, there we go. That's all uh, I got. <laughs> let's do one from the old right. chat bar. Next question. Yeah, Evan Huntley in in right, the chat here bar. Here we go. Uh, what's Evan Hunley, what's your favorite open source CMS for large scale sites? I work in higher ed and given the size of sites I work on, WordPress often just isn't an option. I think that's a weird sentiment. Well, I'll tell you uh, first thing, higher. Go, go. Well, yeah, so I know some higher ed that does do WordPress, but man, uh, lots of higher ed do Drupal. So that's probably the big. Uh, higher ed loves Drupal. There's like whole higher ed Drupal conferences and stuff. Like yeah. That. So, and you know, th- would, there may be some benefits to that, that. And it's zero dollars, and you're not putting your university in a place where they are in a twenty year contract for millions of dollars to some yeah. enterprise CMS. There's something to, to be said about picking a CMS that just other people in the world use, other people in your industry use. You know, because that way you can. I don't know. You could go to that conference and have something to talk about or whatever, or have something in common with other people that are often doing what you're going to do. Of course, I'm required to say that 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 it's weird to think that WordPress can't handle um, large scale sites. I mean, you're aware that WordPress.com is one single install of WordPress multi-site, right? Like it's one of the biggest websites in the world. It, WordPress can handle your stuff. Uh, and if it can't, there's something wrong, you know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, it's it's a weird sentiment to have that WordPress just can't handle large scale. I would say that's incorrect. Uh, but you know, I get it. WordPress is good. Like, let's not worry about that. But um, yeah, like, yeah. Drupal. That's the answer that's you're looking for. Say. Okay. I'm gonna pause my camera just a bit. Oh, you're losing a little internet. Drupal, Drupal's Drupal's the right way to go. <laughs> Okay, we let's just do one more anyway. We're coming up on an hour, so 
Um, oh, yeah. Let's do one more. You pick it. This chat room thing has been so much fun, man. This is it's wild. It's like mind melting, but it's a lot of fun to get some real time questions. Uh, do you want to sure. go to the sidebar or to the other? You pick. Okay, here we go. Sidebar question. The Let's do the top question. Oh, man. Hold on. Let's see. Last minute votes here. All right. Let's do this one from Kyle Lambert. How do you guys handle scaling CSS on large applications? I work for a startup, and sometimes there is just so much that there isn't time to think about writing CSS I'm writing will affect the application in the long term. Any tips would be great. Mm. So in a startup, moving fast and loose, writing code, slapping it together, large scale, might come back and bite them. This is great. I mean, this is a classic conversation. Not everybody has this because there's plenty of lone soldiers out there working on individual websites and they have they have different needs and stuff. But I, I do enjoy thinking about you know, scalable CSS. What is it like to work on ginormous sites like the, you know, like the university thing we just talked about? And maybe that's like sites and subsites and, you know, there's 10 levels deep of navigation you can go. And so how do you write CSS that that's practical for that without making it a big mess? How do you write CSS for Twitter or something that has just, you know, just loads of CSS, I'm sure. What are those techniques? I would say number one is is a, a style guide of some kind and possibly a style guide like plus plus like pattern library. Maybe those are the same kind of thing. But think of it as like this is a type of chunk that we use that's common on our site. I'm going to define it here so that it's that you can reuse it a bunch of times and it's pretty easy. Uh, there was just an article in a list apart about that by Susan something. I don't know if you saw that one day, but it was pretty good. It was kind of like, this will help you do it. Susan Robertson. Yeah. And there was, uh, there's, uh, there's the, you know, read stuff by Harry Roberts. He writes good stuff about, uh, you know, there's that like generally the, the, the smacks and the OOCSS thing. Uh, uh, and, and, and that there's there's a good Nicholas Gallagher article on on kind of being pragmatic about your front end. I read all that type of stuff. I know that's a that was like a major link dump without the links. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the best uh, book I read last year was Smacks by Jonathan Snook. And, and it talks he were it's all based on his experience coding up Yahoo Mail, which turns out is a kind of big web application <laughs> so uh i would i would definitely check that out it's um it it kind of it sort of informs the discussion so when you read harry roberts or or even susan's article on a list apart like you kind of like oh okay now i'm kind of getting how how like modules and build up and and stitch together and get bigger. Um, that was that was the best book I've read in long time on CSS and stuff like that. So uh, highly recommend that. And then yeah, there's BEM. That's another like strategy, but like it's the same thing basically, just a little different. Um, yeah, I, I there's I, I would start there. That's kind of yeah. you need to figure out how to manage complexity and then scale those little fix right. fixes and junk you add There's on. There's lots of little tips Otherwise, I think that can that can help you get there. You know, like this idea of never ever style anything with an ID. You know, it's like just just don't do it. Just don't. I mean, just let's not have a big fight about it. Just this is the idea we're we're we're, <laughs> we're keeping we're keeping specificity at uh, like the uh, the baseline level that we possibly can. There's the idea of how do you name things? Try to not name things way, way too specifically. Uh, come up with a naming system, you know, try to try to think about like, am I naming this? Am I naming this like bottom footer warning for homepage or something? Is that the class name that you're using? That's a little, that's a little specific. Try to be less specific about stuff or more. I don't have it match your brain. However, that happens to work rather than like listening to what I'm telling you is the best way to name things, name things, how you name things, how you think of them, try to match your own kind of brain waves when you name something so that, and I know that's just you and on a large scale site that might be counterintuitive because it's a tall team, but maybe, maybe there should, maybe you can delegate somebody as the namer. So that there's only one brain doing the naming and that will be more consistent. I, I got hung up on a name the other week. I was just like, should it be called card or module or, and I was just like stuck. 
And so, and remember that those yeah. names are for you, not the site. You know, they have no, they, they should describe how you and your team think and talk about the content that's inside of it or the, the more, not even the content, but the styles that are going to come from that. That's how you should name it. Mm-hmm. You, like, like naming it, you know, right. Like card might be maybe more how describing what it looks like or, or I don't know. That That's tough because it yeah. depends on, on what you were talking about there, but but calling it like like main news article because it happens to be a main news article on the site is probably not a great name just because that has to do with the content inside of it, which doesn't matter really. You'd be, I'd lean more towards mm-hmm. a class name that had more meaning to your team in it as far as how it looks. Yeah. I mean, you could just be like news article and then have a modifier class. Again, this is kind of the yeah. smack stuff that's like news article dash dash major feature yeah, or something like and that. And not like and, major and, blue feature too because those type of rules still hold true. You know, don't be so specific mm-hmm. with your class names that they'll never have any other meaning if you decide the blue is not blue anymore, that kind of thing. That's still important, mm-hmm. but like not going so far down the path of semantic class names that you're only naming it based on, you know, like intelligible content or somebody who were to view source that they could understand why you might have named it that thing. You don't care why anybody else thinks you should have named something. It needs to matter to you. And when and I would also recommend SAS if you can get on it because then you're you're like you can do write all your modules nested. So like when you start a module, it's on the left edge and then you just write all the code yeah. going down, hopefully not super deep, but that's, that's, I like that too. It like mentally it. groups it together for you. Even, you know, there's some code advantages to nesting, but there's code disadvantages to nesting too. But I like how it, like, even if you're just writing regular CSS, like indenting stuff over so that you can look at your file and see what's related to what just visually is pretty, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. This, uh, the eternal question, Kyle, hopefully that, there's a few tips yeah, in there. That hopefully you- that helps you. Well, Chris, I'm sad to say we we have hit the end of another yeah. rapid fire episode. Apologies if we did not get to your question in the sidebar. I think we'll maybe be doing this again sometime soon. So hopefully we can and pick up some questions there. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and yeah, it was, thank you guys for coming out live, uh, tuning in. Uh, this will be, you know, later. Uh, if you're downloading this on the podcast, awesome. You can also watch the YouTube video of this. Oh, there was a uh, question from Ignat Robert. What was that sound? It's a soundboard with guns. <laughs> So there you go. And then we'll wrap it up there. Uh, be sure to follow us at Shop Talk Show on Twitter. Subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice. And uh, Chris, is there anything else uh, you, you got to say there? Uh, <clears throat> ShopTalkShow.com. <laughs>